Most people are familiar with the process of translation, but fewer people are familiar with the process of transliteration. So just to clarify, translation is the process of reworking text from one language into another to maintain the original message and communication. So translation answers the question, what does that mean? But in contrast, transliteration changes the words from one language into another with similar sounding letters. And transliteration answers the question, what did the original word sound like? And I feel like I may have already lost some of you, so let's try and bring it back in for a second. In English Bibles, we usually translate the biblical text to convey meaning. But sometimes we transliterate the text to protect the way the original words sounded when they were spoken. We often use transliteration to convey the names of people and places. Well, Today, we'll discuss these two methods and take a look at some of the troublesome complications that arise when they're employed within the pages of sacred text. Welcome to episode 80. The Translation, Transliteration Trouble Within Testament Texts. And welcome to the Rethinking Scripture podcast. If this is your first time, you've picked a doozy to jump in on. But if this isn't your first rodeo, thanks for coming back and giving it another listen. And just a note before we get into today's topic... In real time, the last couple episodes have been a couple weeks apart, and that might continue because I am spending some extra time on my audiobook. I did some work last year before the launch of Rethinking Rest, doing some recording, and I'm finally getting around to editing and finishing out the last few chapters. I hope to finish that project in time for the audiobook to be available for the Christmas season. So... You can wish me luck on that. It is a lot of work. And I am finding out that there are about 18 different ways you can read any given sentence. And unfortunately, I have found most of those ways just in trying to communicate the words I have already written. (laughs) Also, just wanted to mention, if you go to RethinkingScripture.com, right there on the front page, we've got a link to an Israel tour that's coming up in February of 2024. And this is not just any Israel tour. Dr. John H. Walton has agreed to join as a co-host. Not just John, but his wife, Kim, is also joining us on this trip. So if you'd like to travel the land of the Bible, walking alongside a world-renowned and well-respected Old Testament biblical scholar and his wife, who, by the way, is a working archaeologist in the land of Israel every summer. This is your chance. Oh, and by the way, (laughs) I'm going to be on the trip too. You can walk alongside me as well when you get tired of walking alongside those two. It's February of 2024. That's when the trip is. All the details are on my websites, rethinkingrest.com, rethinkingscripture.com. 
we've got about five spots left that we'd like to fill. And I suspect those will be gone before the end of the summer. So if that's of interest at all to you or somebody you might know might be interested, please reach out to me and I can get you some more information so you can make at least an informed decision. Well, today we're jumping into the world of biblical translation. And this is one of those topics that I have a danger of losing some of you very quickly. So I'm going to try and make it as interesting as I possibly can, because this is fascinating stuff. And it's kind of like behind the curtain type stuff. That's a reference, obviously, to the Wizard of Oz when they go to visit the wizard and there's the big show. But then they pull the curtain back and it's really just a guy behind the curtain doing all the magic tricks. In the world of biblical translation, most people, most Christians today are just familiar with our English text. And that's kind of like the show. It's the finished product. But there's a lot of work that goes in behind the curtain in the process of translation. And today we're going to dive into some of those. I'm going to give you some real practical examples, verses that you're very familiar with. And my goal would be that you will never look at Scripture quite the same way again, for good or for ill. (laughs) So to begin, I don't think there's any great need to go into a lot of detail on just the inherent problems that arise when somebody is trying to translate a text from one language to another. And while the struggle of conveying meaning via this idea of translation is generally well understood, our attempts to translate meaning across languages, they're generally very good, but they are never perfect. And a lot of that is not just a language problem, but it's sometimes a context and a cultural problem as well. The language and context of any text has nuances that are nearly impossible to fully replicate across time and culture and different languages. So to begin with, let's just give a brief overview about the languages of the Bible. In the first century Palestine, so first century, we're talking New Testament, the common language was Greek. It was used in commerce was the only shared language across the entirety of the Roman Empire. So as we dive into the New Testament, whether it be the authors of the gospel or the example at the end of today's podcast, where we'll dive into the book of Hebrews, those authors likely wrote using the Greek language. The oldest copies that we have of any of these books are in the Greek language when we're talking about the New Testament. When it comes to the Old Testament, though, That was originally mostly written in the Hebrew language. There are small portions that were written in Aramaic, and as somebody who studied biblical Hebrew for a short period of my life, it's near impossible if you don't really know the languages to understand where those places are that slip into Aramaic, because Hebrew and Aramaic share the same alphabet, kind of sister languages. So the Old Testament, mostly written in Hebrew, little portions, small portions of Aramaic. Most people listening may have already known that. But here is a nuance that you may not have thought of before. What happens when a New Testament author writing in Greek 
includes a scripture from the Hebrew Old Testament. How does that process happen? When a New Testament author brings the Hebrew Old Testament into a New Testament book and quotes it or alludes to it, that language is already being translated, and all the inherent difficulties of translation are coming into play for the New Testament authors. And we like to think of Scripture as being inerrant and God-ordained, but we also know just the practicality of any time you translate something over, you're not going to be able to get exactly what was in the old language, the original language, when you translate it into something new. So that was happening as the New Testament authors were bringing Old Testament quotes and allusions into their letters that they wrote. And then most of the people listening today have never even interacted with the New Testament Greek or the Old Testament Hebrew. You're just reading an English translation of the Greek New Testament, which some of that is a translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. So you're sometimes two languages removed. And that's not a challenge to the authority of Scripture at all. That's just a red flag that should pop up that you should be aware of. Hey, maybe there's a little more studying that needs to be done rather than just quickly reading through an English version and assuming I've gotten the whole picture. And you might think those New Testament authors uh, had like a Hebrew Old Testament in front of them when they were quoting Old Testament scriptures. But interestingly enough, that's not what they were doing. The majority of the quotes that we find in the Greek New Testament are quotes of a Greek translation that was in use already by the time Jesus was born. It's called the Septuagint. And the name Septuagint, or sometimes referred to, if you're reading it, is LXX, referring to 70. It refers to the story of the 70 Alexandrian scholars who began the process of translating the Hebrew Pentateuch, the Old Testament, from the Hebrew text in the 3rd century B.C. It was the Septuagint that was the most widely used Bible of the Hellenistic Jews around the world. And it was that for more than six centuries. And because of that dominance, the Septuagint was the principal source for New Testament writers when they were quoting the Old Testament. Well, believe it or not, all of this is important to understand as we head into a closer look at some examples that, again, you're going to be familiar with these passages that we look at. Just giving you a little glimpse behind the curtain, helping you to understand what it is that you're seeing when you look on the pages of your English translation. And with those inherent difficulties of translation, the reader, you, me, we can expect some gaps in understanding to arise in that process. And it is good and healthy to acknowledge that there is a bit of a translational storm happening when we approach the English translation of a New Testament book. And because of this, we, the readers of the English translations, at times we have to rely on the footnotes and cross-references to find a safe harbor from the storm. What are some of those choppy waters? Well, that's where we're headed next. It's going to be fascinating. If I put you to sleep, let this music <laughs> wake you up. 
So the title of today's episode is The Translation, Transliteration Trouble Within Testament Texts. So now let's just spend a little bit of time discussing the difference between translation and transliteration. It's an important distinction, even though you're probably more familiar with the idea of translation and you might not be at all aware of what transliteration is. So instead of translating the meanings of words, that's the idea of translation, for various reasons, translators sometimes choose to transliterate a word from one language to another. What does that mean? Well, transliteration is the process of changing letters from one language into similar-sounding characters of another language. So, for instance, sometimes Hebrew words are written in transliteration using English letters so that those who do not speak Hebrew can sound out the words. For example, the word for peace in Hebrew, it consists of four letters, but it's brought into the English language as the word shalom, spelled S-H-A-L-O-M. So if you were to hear an ancient Hebrew say their word for peace, it would sound like shalom. And we have created a word in English with English alphabet letters that helps us say that word like the Hebrew people would have said it. And we know that the translation of that word shalom, the meaning of that word, is peace. And interestingly, a topic that I've discussed quite often, the Sabbath, it's derived from a whole string of transliterations. So, Sabbath is an English transliteration of the Greek, sabbaton, which is a transliteration of the Hebrew, shabbat. And where translation conveys the meaning from one language to another, transliteration simply conveys the sound of a word into another language. Both are incredibly valuable tools used in the process of passing text from one language to another. And as a reader of the New Testament English version, you interact with transliterations sometimes without even realizing it. And there's one example that you're going to be well aware of that highlights how familiar you are with these and yet how complicated of a process it really is. It comes from the calling of the first disciples in the book of John. It's there in John chapter 1, verses 40 through 42, where we read about two of John the Baptist's disciples who have found Jesus, and they begin to bring others to him. Here, I'll just read these three verses. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. Verse 41, he found first his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. Verse 42, he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. And that's the end of verse 42. 
you may have actually read that so many times that you just sort of skip over what's being said there without even realizing how complicated it is. So let's just walk back through the passage and stop for some clarity along the way. And just to be clear, this clarity that I speak of will likely confuse you a bit. <laughs> let's start with verse 41. It begins, he, and that's talking about Andrew, one of the two that's following John the Baptist around, found first his own brother, Simon. We also know him as Peter, but let's just take a look at Simon. Simon is a common Greek name, but it is a transliteration of the Hebrew name Simeon. So it's likely that Peter was a Simeon. But because they were in a Greek context, that name was transliterated into Simon. Evidently, Simon was known in Jewish circles by a Greek transliteration of his Hebrew name. Okay, let's go on in the text. Andrew says to Simon, we have found the Messiah. Now, the word Messiah is an English transliteration of the Hebrew word Mishiach. That Hebrew word means anointed one. But right after that, the text says, speaking of this word Messiah, which translated means Christ. In the Greek New Testament, when John wrote this gospel, he transliterated the Hebrew word for Messiah and then put a note into the text in parentheses to explain to the Greek what the equivalent was and the Greek word there was Christos, which is transliterated into the English as Christ. Now, I'm glad that's clear to you what's going on here. <laughs> Let me just put it this way. When John writes down what Andrew said, we have found the Messiah, and then John adds, which translated means Christ, he is translating Messiah into the Greek word that means the same thing. But we have transliterated both of those into our English language, and so we are missing the main point that John was trying to make to his original readers. What does Messiah mean? Well, it obviously means Christ. And we have come to think that Christ is Jesus' last name. But Christ is the Greek word that means the same thing as the Hebrew word Messiah and the translation of that, the meaning of those two words, is the anointed one. And if you're reading an English translation, you're likely going to have to look in the footnotes or the cross-references to find out the actual translation of those words. He first found his own brother, Simon. And said to him, we have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ, which translated means the anointed one. It's an idea that goes back into the Old Testament where people were anointed to fill certain positions and roles. And the anointing was an anointing by God himself. So it is highly significant that we understand what Messiah means, what Christ means, and not only that, but be able to tie it back to the concept coming out of the Old Testament. That one was expected, 
that God was going to bring on the scene and give him a special anointing for a specific ministry. And these guys in John chapter 1 found that guy. That's big news. I don't care who you are. And if you thought that was uh, hard enough, let's just uh, finish with one more verse. Just one more verse. Verse 42. He brought him to Jesus. Well, let's just <laughs> just clarify. Andrew brought Simon to Jesus. And I've got to stop here because Jesus is an English translation of a Greek word, Jesus, which is the Greek name Joshua. When Mary and Joseph were given the name to call their child, the English equivalent is Joshua, which has high significance and meaning coming out of the Hebrew Old Testament. There was a character named Joshua back in the Old Testament that had a significant leadership role for the nation of Israel. And now this anointed one, this Messiah, this Christ character has been named Joshua, who was an anointed one in the Old Testament. These are all connections that are very difficult to make if you're reading only the English translation. So he, Andrew, brought him, Simon, to him, Jesus, but really Joshua. (laughs) And Joshua, I mean, Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, a transliteration of Simeon, the son of John, I'll leave that one alone, you shall be called Cephas. And then John the author, again, includes a parenthetical translation for his Greek-speaking readers to translate for them what Cephas means. Because Cephas is an Aramaic word for stone. And so then John the author parenthetically says, which is translated Petros. That is Peter's name in Greek, Petros. We have brought it into the English translation as Peter, but that is a transliteration of Petros. So granted, I'm picking the worst two verses to ever try and explain this because it's so confusing, but it's because there's so many examples and we're used to reading it, but maybe not really understanding what it is we're reading. He, Andrew, at first found his own brother, Simon, who was probably really known as Simeon. And Andrew said to him, we have found the Messiah, the anointed one. And John says that's translated into Greek as Christos. And we know it as Christ, but it's really all talking about the anointed one, that idea coming out of the Old Testament. And Andrew brought Simon to Jesus, or Joshua, and Joshua looked at him and said, You are Simeon, the son of John. You shall be called this Aramaic name Cephas, which means stone or rock. And then John translates that for his Greek readers, Petros, and that comes in as Peter. And we now know this character as an English transliteration of the Greek translation of his Aramaic name, which means rock or stone. 
This passage is just filled with a very complicated string of transliterated names, some Aramaic, others Greek. It includes some Greek transliterations of Hebrew and Aramaic words. And finally, all the names are transliterated into the English Bible translation with hopefully some footnotes supplied to explain the translated meanings behind the names. And I just say all this because what the authors of the New Testament were trying to convey is the meaning of the name. Oftentimes, names were significant. People or places were given names because the meaning of that word had significance for either the place it was naming or the person it was naming. In this case, Simeon is being changed to Peter or a rock. Just so you know, the significance is not the English word Peter. The significance is the meaning of the Aramaic Cephas. Jesus was on purpose giving this guy the name Rock. He was calling him the Rock. And the problem of how to convey the significance of a name is one of the difficult subtleties in translation. Sometimes the name carries so much significance in the story that transliterating the word, while that protects the sound of the word, it does not completely convey the important aspect of the story's meaning. So here's another great example. We find it in the book of Ruth in that book at the beginning that the author tells us, now it came about in the days when the judges governed that there was a famine in the land and a certain man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and his two sons. Now there's irony in what I just read and you may not recognize it because we've transliterated the name Bethlehem. The irony of this opening statement is completely missed if one does not understand the famine in the land has reached even to a place, Bethlehem, which means in the original Hebrew, the house of bread. Again, you may have heard a sermon that has used some sort of a title or a theme like no bread in the house of bread. That's an understanding that could easily be missed because of the transliteration of the name Bethlehem. We get the sound of the word, but we don't understand the meaning behind it. And while there has been some discussion about what rules modern translators could use or choose to follow, there was really no such attempt in ancient times. So, The process of translating, let's say, the Septuagint from Hebrew into Greek, the decision to translate versus transliterate was really just highly dependent on the cultural traditions of a certain area. So while we try to have some uniformity now in how we do this, back then there was really no uniformity at all. Those who penned the pages of the New Testament often chose to be influenced 
by one of many available versions of the Greek Septuagint. Instead of actually referencing the Hebrew version of the Old Testament directly, and exactly why the New Testament authors relied so heavily on a Greek translation rather than going back to the original source of the Hebrew, that's been the source of many debates, and we're not going to try and answer those questions today. But what we will focus on in the remainder of this episode is probably a lesser-known example of this. And we find it in Hebrews chapters 3 and 4, where the author quotes a portion of Psalm 95. Here, let me just start by reading Hebrews chapter 3, starting in verse 5, and then I'll tell you when we slip into the quote of Psalm 95 out of the Old Testament. The author begins, Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. But Christ, remember, that's the Greek word for the anointed one, but Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. Then verse 7, Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, and here begins a quote of Psalm 95. Interestingly enough, David was the author of Psalm 95, but here the author of Hebrews ascribes it to the Holy Spirit. That's just interesting commentary about inspiration in Scripture, right? And before I start reading it, this quote in the book of Hebrews of Psalm 95 matches up with the Greek Septuagint translation. So we know, based on this and other references that the author of Hebrews makes, that when Hebrews quotes Old Testament scripture, the author is not going back to the Hebrew text and translating it himself. The author is going to the Septuagint and quoting that version. And that's important because that would be the version that everybody in his readership would be familiar with. So he's doing a service to his readership by quoting something they're going to be already familiar with. So here it goes. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, now quoting Psalm 95, Today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for forty years. Therefore, I was angry with this generation and said, They always go astray in their heart, and they did not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And that's the end of the quote of Psalm 95. And it's important to understand that this particular section of the Psalm 95, it contains two proper nouns. Specifically, if you go back into the Psalms, you're going to see the place names Meribah and Massa. That's the transliteration of those names in Hebrew. And as with many Hebrew names, as we've said before, these names, they have significant meaning. And those, uh, all of us, let's just include all of ourselves together now, who are not familiar with the meanings of the translated Hebrew words, Meribah and Massa, we can become easily confused when we read the quote in the book of Hebrews because 
those two place names were translated. The meanings were translated into rebellion and testing in the book of Hebrews. And it's interesting because commentators on this often conclude that the rebellion and the testing mentioned in the Hebrews passage, that that specifically refers to things like maybe the rebellion story at Kadesh Barnea from Numbers chapters 13 and 14. For those of you not familiar, Kadesh Barnea is when they sent in the 12 spies, had a chance to enter the land, but because only Joshua and Caleb came back with a positive report, the people decided not to enter into their rest, the land of Israel. And at first glance, it does seem like all the needed elements are present for a Kadesh Barnea connection. There's grumbling in that story. There's a warning against rebellion in that story. There's a mention about all the signs God had performed in their midst. The people tested God there. And there's an oath that none besides Joshua and Caleb would enter the land. And with all of those elements seemingly matching up to this description in the book of Hebrews, it's been easy for many people to conclude from the Hebrews rendition that the psalmist must have been referring to the events at Kadesh Barnea. But the problem with that is that the psalm that the author of Hebrews is quoting It specifically refers to an event by naming the location of that event, Meribah and Massa. You're going to notice this if you place the Hebrews passage right next to the psalm in the Old Testament for comparison. You're going to notice that there are differences between how the psalm is written in the Old Testament and the way it's quoted in the book of Hebrews. And let me just say that theologians spend a lot of time examining these types of things, and we're not going to go into great detail with it today. The only real thing we're going to pay attention to is this Meribah and Massa. It's in Psalm 95.8, and Hebrews 3.8 translates that place name. It's two names given to one place, one event. Hebrews 3.8 translates the meaning of those names as do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me, provoked me, that's Meribah, as in the day of trial, that's Massa, in the wilderness. And by tracking the Hebrews quote back to Psalm 95, we discover that the rebellion being discussed, it's not describing the people's behavior during their entire time they were in the wilderness, Rather, the psalm refers to the specific rebellious events that happened at Meribah and Massa. And it might cause you to wonder, well then, what exactly happened at Meribah and Massa? And that's a great question. And that's the question that the author of Hebrews wants you to ask. And it shows you're beginning to understand the complexity of these passages. So I'll only mention that I discuss this more fully in my book. And if the book rendition of this is not to your depth satisfaction, I went into great detail, much more detail, in my doctoral major project. And that's available on my Rethinking Rest website in the blog posts. You can look it up and download the whole thing for yourself and read to your heart's content. 
And you will likely be maybe the fourth or fifth person that's ever read that work. <laughs> so Maribel and Massa, where does that take us? A quick check of cross-references reveals that the two place names, Maribel and Massa, are associated with one story. It's a story back in Exodus 17, verses 1 through 7. In other words, to just round out today's episode, something happened in Exodus 17 at Meribah and Massa that has a direct relationship with the type of rest being described in the book of Hebrews. And the author of Hebrews is warning us not to harden our hearts like the people did in that story back in Exodus 17. And that's because they missed out on their opportunity of rest because of that story. Meribah and Massa, it's not two places. It's just one place where things went so horribly wrong that they needed to give it two names. Well, that's all the translation, transliteration trouble that I've got for today. And let's be honest, isn't that just (laughs) almost more than enough? All that said, I would just encourage you as a Bible reader to be willing to spend more than just the time it takes to read your English translation. If somebody in the New Testament is quoting somebody in the Old Testament, he's doing that for a specific reason. And it is worth our time as scholars, as studiers of God's Word, to trace that back and see where that rabbit trail leads. In addition, sometimes, because of transliterated names, we don't often get the meanings behind those names. So the extra step of looking into what a name means and then Again, tracing that back into its Old Testament roots is going to be highly valuable in connecting the God story that the entire Bible tells. And without it, we're reading segmented pieces of a story that may not have the significance that it could if we were able to tie it all together. So for what it's worth, go out and get a good Bible with cross-references. Use your internet. There's a lot of different ways you can find this stuff out. But don't just be satisfied with one English translation that might not be able to connect everything that the biblical authors were intending to connect. And I'll just ask, what Bible nerd do you know that would be interested in hearing what you just listened to? Why don't you give them a call? Give them a text and just tell them. You need to think about listening to the Rethinking Scripture podcast.